Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. The following was produced by Tearsheet Studios. We worked with employment data platform Argal to create a podcast series about the rising importance of employment data and how lenders, banks, and fintechs are using this data to make financial products available to more people, solving some of the challenges with today's financial services. Thanks to rapid technological advancements, everything we know about work is constantly changing. The pandemic also brought about massive job losses, and many career paths changed as a result. With the rise of the gig economy, this new reality means more and more people are joining the non-traditional multi-income workforce. Financial systems, like credit scoring, weren't built for this new worker. They were built for the W-2 worker with a single full-time job and monthly pay stub. This leaves non-traditional workers underserved by traditional financial services and puts major hurdles in the way of deserving folks towards their financial well-being. Fintechs like Argyle look to technology to create transparency and empower everyday people. So I am uh, one of the co-founders and the chief operating officer of Argyle. Um, so at Argyle, I manage all of our customer-facing operations. Um, so anything from uh, sales to uh, customer success to marketing, uh, my job is to really uh, make sure that uh, our product is uh, being used for the most value for our customers. I spoke with Marsden about his entry into fintech. Like many entrepreneurs tackling today's big issues, he didn't grow up in the system. His background as a consultant gives him a bird's eye view of the industry, while his experience in enterprise software exposed him to software's power to address specific large problems. And I think his stint as an early stage fintech investor honed his insight into identifying big opportunities. Yeah, good question. I, uh, I'm heavier on the tech than on the fin, uh, as far as my background goes. So um, I spent uh, the early parts of my career at Bain, uh, consulting mostly in the tech industry for large clients. Uh, from there, I jumped to uh, an early stage startup, Stratum, which uh, we spent time in fleet management. So it was enterprise software for companies that manage large fleets of vehicles. Um, and, and in that capacity, I spent a lot of time working uh, with uh, independent contractors who uh, provided services for fleet vehicles. From there, um, spent time as an investor. Um, so I was, a, I was an early stage venture investor in, in fintech and enterprise software at F Prime Capital. And then um, Shmuel Gadrius and I um, started the journey with Argyle. So I like to say that I've seen tech from many different angles, from a consulting angle, uh, from an operating angle, from an investing angle, and, and now from a founding angle. Marsden comes from a broad background in various tech industries which lends itself well for his current role heading operations at Argyle. The fintech industry, however, easily stands out as it continues changing to expand its reach globally to touch every imaginable sector. You know, I think fintech is, is certainly one of the industries that I've, I've lived in and operated in that feels like it's undergoing the most radical change the, the most quickly. You know, I think it's uh, we're in a story in fintech where it's slowly at first and then all at once, and we're really starting along that hockey curve. And I think one of the one of the really interesting elements of, of fintech is it touches everybody. Um, you know, nobody can uh, no no consumer, no business can escape the disruption that's happening as a result of you know financial innovation. Um, some of the other you know industries that I've existed in sort of live in their niche parts of the world, but uh, fintech in that way certainly feels ubiquitous. With the rise of the gig economy. And against the backdrop of a global pandemic, work is undeniably changing. As traditional workers lose jobs and change career paths, the non-traditional workforce is expanding quickly, too quickly for financial services to catch up. 
Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to non-traditional and thin file workers, um, you know, I think the, the sort of the, the biggest challenge uh, that we see is a lack of access, um, a lack of access to financial services and products. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think this, this leads to bad outcomes for all parties. I think this leads to bad outcomes for businesses because businesses, frankly, want to serve um, those customers. It's a large market in the U.S., and I think everybody is in agreement that you know everybody everybody should have access to um, the right kinds of financial products and services. Um, but that that remains you know in, in, an unaddressable market for many businesses, many financial businesses. And then you know from a worker's perspective, it means um, uh, they you know an in, inability in, in, in to access affordable financial products and services. Um, and I think, you know, our diagnosis on this, um, or at least our, our, our um, solution to the cause is making it easier for those consumers um, to provide information about themselves. Um, I'll give the example, let's just talk about the lending industry specifically. An, an Uber driver who wants to get a loan, um, how does an Uber driver today um, verify the things that that lender needs to see in order to provide that person with access to credit. It's virtually impossible for them to do in this day and age. And so their only alternative is really, you know, a payday loan. Um, and, um, you know, so so for, um, you know, fair, transparent lenders who exist, they can't really um, do their appropriate diligence or risk modeling on that driver because they don't have verified information. And that Uber driver, you know, is locked out from um, affordable financial products. Financial products and services were built around the traditional single-income worker. As a result, non-traditional workers, with their changing portfolio of employers and income streams, are frequently left behind. You know, we've built a financial system that is meant to serve a very specific type of IRS classification. Um, you know, it's meant to serve salaried workers, let's say, or it's meant to serve um, specifically W-2 workers. Um, and so what we see are, are people who are now making money in very different ways, right? We see 1099 workers. We see, um, you know, we see people who make money through rental income or who are running their own fleets. Um, you know, I see so all sorts of entrepreneurs who are, who are coming up with new and innovative ways to make money. But the financial system is very much structured on a worker, you know, has a job, gets paid that money. Um, and that's documented very clearly in, in, a, in a document known as a W-2. Um, and so, financial uh, service providers have not necessarily caught up with uh, the way, um, the, the disparate ways that folks are now making money um, and, and the varied ways that folks are now making money and, and, and sort of caught in a, in a structure um, that was set up many, many years ago um, that has since evolved. So what are the alternatives? For the non-traditional 1099 worker, very few options are available for important financial products like loans. Those options too are not easily accessible or in any way seamless. Let's just talk about lending specifically. They can go to a payday lender, um, or they can go to very specific niche lenders who will ask for um, robust, uh, extensive documentation, um, which is difficult to procure. So none of these are really great solutions. Which um, you know, I think when we when we refer to these thin file workers, means that lenders are operating in the dark and so can't provide them with appropriate, uh, you know. Uh, uh, appropriately quantified risk and therefore, um, you know, the right types of financial products and services. And those workers don't have access to, um, uh, you know, 
easy, uh, easily accessible, affordable loans. How come non-traditional workers remain underserved by financial services? Could lenders do more to better serve these customers and capture the significantly growing market sector? Or is it the overarching financial system that's preventing a seamless interaction between lenders and borrowers? Well, let's talk about an Uber driver. Um, so a lender want access to an Uber driver's income. Um, how would they do that today? It's very difficult. Do they want an Uber driver to go and screenshot all of the trips that that individual has done within their app and send them over? You know, that's overly burdensome for uh, both sides of that equation. And a business can't really digest that type of information. Uh, and that's, that's, part of, um, that's part of where Argyle comes in is creating this intermediary technology layer that makes it easy for um, you know, workers who aren't necessarily making money in a traditional way to transfer their employment or income records seamlessly and for businesses to be able to digest that in a seamless automated fashion. Work has been changing rapidly in recent decades. These changes are brought about by ever-evolving technologies, changing workflows and workspaces. In the past year and a half, however, we've experienced an unexpected huge impact that hit first and hard at workers and businesses worldwide. It forced us to reassess much we knew about work. Lost income, lost jobs. Um, and I think um, specifically what we've seen in a pandemic is a desire or a shift actually to sort of this independent contractor-like work. Um, not necessarily Uber specifically, but folks going to more varied income streams. I think we've seen an acceleration of that as a result of the pandemic and so many you know, salaried um, hourly workers being laid off. And so you know, one of the trends that I see coming out of this pandemic um, is a, a, a shift or an acceleration towards um, more freelance, more gig type work, not just for um, people who work for Uber, but you know, all sorts of workers, people who want to work remotely, people who want to work internationally. You know, we're a, we're a remote first company. And I think at this point, um, uh, you know, that's, that's what a lot of talent in the world now wants. Um, we, I think a lot of businesses are proving that they can, they can function uh, remotely um, and they can function seamlessly with contractor-based work. And I think that's what workers are going to start to demand. And so business will need to adapt as a result. The pandemic impacted not only workers and businesses, but financial services at large. With new ways of earning income, the need to effectively access, manage, and analyze employment data in real time is urgent like never before. For a mortgage lender, there's never been a larger need to verify somebody's income and employment status. Um, and um, I'll give a few examples. You know, I think a lot of um, a lot of buzz around um, cash flow underwriting. I think cash flow underwriting is um, has served has served a lot of purposes in in the industry. But um, you know, one of the downfalls in in cash flow underwriting is you know you're seeing uh, uh, you're seeing a, a deposit hit a bank account from an income perspective, and um, that at times can be two to four weeks old. You know, that money made to the time when you might see it, and so you're now as a business operating. Um, sometimes two to four weeks in the past of reality. That's sort of the, the latency of information that you have. And in an environment like the pandemic, that doesn't really work, right? When, when there are so many people who are, um, whose, jobs, who, whose jobs are being lost or whose jobs are being made on a, on a, um, you know, on a weekly basis. I think we were seeing you know, millions of workers who are, who are changing jobs um, during the pandemic or who, who lost jobs during the pandemic. And so what we're really seeing from businesses is that 
that latency requirement is getting lower and lower and lower. There's a real need for real-time information. Um, and that's uh, one of the things that Argyle does is, is provide real-time access, you know, up to the hour relevant of whether, you know, somebody is employed or not, or whether somebody's making money or not. Um, and that that's something that I think lenders are really starting to, to demand and need to run their business efficiently. Argyle looks to employment data as the master key to unlock the growing non-traditional workforce's financial lives. By using tech to put alternative real-time data in the hands of its owners, Argyle seeks to shift the narrative around financial credibility. I think that employment data is the bedrock of somebody's financial picture. Um, I think it is, um, it's, it is one of, if not, I would argue, the most important indicator of somebody's financial health. Because of an inability for consumers to access this information, it makes them very hard for them to do things, right? It makes them very hard to get loans, um, get access to insurance products, et cetera. And so what, what gets me excited up in the morning is, one, putting control of an individual's data into their hands. I think that's incredibly liberating and powerful for somebody to be able to go and prove that they work somewhere and prove that they make money. Uh, it's, it, and it's nearly impossible for somebody to do that today. Um, and then, you know, I think the other thing that really gets me excited is what that what the possibilities are for them once once a consumer, once a borrower is able to um, harness that information. I think it 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 changes the game for a lot of um, for a lot of folks, especially folks who are at you know thin file, um, you know, no file type of borrowers, right? Those folks are stuck between a rock and a hard place. It, it, we've got a we've got a lot of lenders who are sitting on. Um, a lot of research that says, um, hey, especially in the subprime segment, um, a credit score is actually a very poor indicator of ability to pay. Mm. Um, and, if, and if you look at ability to pay, what you're actually really looking for is it's a behavioral characteristic. And you can see those behavioral characteristics in employment data. Um, and I'll give a very specific example. A lot of the most progressive lenders, what we see is their underwriting based on tenure. So how long has someone worked somewhere? You know, as somebody who hires, you know, a lot of team members to Argyle, one of the indicators I look for is, you know, how long does somebody stay in their previous jobs, right? Because that, you know, somebody who bounces around from job nine months, nine months, nine months is probably less reliable than somebody who stays at a job for many, many years at a time. And it's the same thing in lending, right? If you see that somebody has worked in a place for a long amount of time or consistently shows up to their shifts, that is a very powerful indicator of ability to pay as a result of a, you know, a low credit score. Um, I, I think a credit score is very light on income and very heavy on debt and liabilities. And I'm excited to shift that balance. The underlying mechanisms of the credit system are difficult to understand, even for people with good scores. As Marsden says, a credit score does not actually tell us much about a person's present income and ability to pay. Shifting the narrative around financial credibility will require rewriting a new financial story. Well, I think it's a world where you know, it, it well-publicized criticisms of who credit scores affects disproportionately poorly and who it, you know, who it helps. And I think that creates an imbalanced playing field. Right, it disproportionately hurts, you know, subprime borrowers. I see this as much more a much more transparent system. Um, you know, who knows what goes into a credit score? I don't know what goes into mine. And when I get a, a notification that it increases by twenty or decreases by fifty or whatever, I, I don't know why that's happening. Um, 
And, and so I see this creating a much more um, transparent, um, you know, people know what goes into their employment data and why those things are there, um, a much more transparent and a much more um, meritocratic system, you know, based on factors that, that individuals, that borrowers, that consumers can influence and understand why and how they're influencing it. Creating APIs with the power to effectively aggregate and digest exponentially growing employment data points is not easy, but making a good working product is only the first step. You know, I think our biggest challenge is, is putting this product into the hands um, of, of businesses, right? And, and the way that we see it is every time that Argyle is used, it benefits a business and benefits a consumer. Um, and so, you know, I think our objective as a business, this might sound overly simplistic, but is to increase the usage of our product um, because it, we think it benefits both sides of this quote unquote marketplace. Um, and so I think the, the biggest thing that um, the biggest challenge that we're working through is how can we get this into the hands of um, as many individuals as possible, as many businesses as possible. Um, and that requires a lot of education, right? It requires thinking about um, it requires thinking about employment data in, an, in a different way, in a consumer owned way. Um, and so, the, um, you know, I think I think the um, one of the big challenges we really face is educating the market on you know how they should think about employment data differently on on consumers owning them and consumers being able to um, pass them from um, you know from their own employment systems to businesses. Though employment data is entirely created by working people, ownership of that fact is another story. Wielding the power of that data in one's hands through smart systems that provide access to it relies on an understanding that comes naturally to younger workers and businesses. Yeah, I think we're, I definitely think we're early in this. I mean, the, I think the banking aggregators have, um, have made this more normal. Um, I think that younger generations are probably much more comfortable with this. And I even see that in some of the clients that we sell to, um, you know, I think sort of the, um, the younger businesses are, are more comfortable with this. Um, but I, you know, it, much like fintech, I sort of see this as the wave of um, early at the beginning and then all at once. And I think we're we're sort of at that um, we're we're at, we're at the snowball phase. And I think ten years we'll think about um, we'll look back and 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 not really remember the days when um, individuals didn't have complete ownership and access and portability of their financial data and of their employment data. We're looking to a future not so far from now when seamless ownership and access to employment data will be an obvious aspect to lending and other financial products. Financial service providers that already utilize employment data will naturally lead the way, but will products like Argyles be helpful for others as well? I'll, I'll break that out into two categories. One, which are businesses that are used to digesting employment data in some way. And typically this comes in terms of either self-reported data or a pay stub upload. Um, those are the two primary ways that businesses digest employment information today. And I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing people use this data to, um, um, you know, fit it into the rows and columns that they're used to, you know, so, uh, you know, they're used to um, taking on employment status or hire date and they're piping in that information, um, largely used for, let's say, verifications in a lending product. Um, but the next frontier, I think, is businesses really thinking about, wow, I have access to much more granular information, right? I don't just have a single pay stub, I have every pay stub. Um, and so how can I then use that? Um, how can I perform analytics on that to um, actually maybe make, create a different risk model um, or make a different credit decision? So um, I think, you know, next frontier is how do I, how do I take this plethora of information that I previously didn't use and, and get smarter with that? I think that's one um, that sort of, I put that in the bucket of businesses who are used to employment data. Um, 
But I think the other side of the pie is businesses who currently don't really digest employment information or employment data in any way. And now that Argyle is making it easy to transfer that information as well as um, easy to digest that information, that means that more businesses get to use this data in, in one way or another. Um, and so uh, we see this um, we see this in some insurance products, people who never really thought about using income data or um, shift level data, being able to uh, incorporate that into their um, into their own products. Um, I'll give another example of um, leasing, you know, leasing um, companies who are now incorporating income information uh, into their own application flow, you know, as opposed to um, um, previously, uh, you know, they may have they may have received a, a, a pay stub via email. So there, are, I think there are all sorts of new businesses that are starting to touch this information in a way that they previously couldn't. This concludes the fourth and final episode in a podcast series we've been running in conjunction with Argyle. To access the other episodes in the series, head on over to the Tearsheet website.